0: In this episode of the podcast, we meet Tracy Chadwell, who is a founding partner at 1843 Capital, an early-stage venture capital fund located in New York City. Named to for Forbes 50 Over 50 inaugural list and one of the Entrepreneur Magazine's 100 Powerful Women, Tracy is an experienced venture capital investor and attorney. Notable investments include early investments in Beauty Counter, Tempo Automation, Hop Skip Drive, and Mabelability. Let me formally introduce you. You know, we got Tracy Chadwell here, uh, with 1843 Ventures, right?
1: Yes, exactly. And
0: um I, I was afraid for one second because I, I was afraid that I messed up the number. Oh, um, I know, but, Everybody
1: does. No. So worries. I had to
0: like flip back and I and I actually did that the other day. I, I met I introduced somebody and it was like um it was like the opposite like sequence of words but right. um but you know that's a good tee up you know so tracy chadwell 1843 capital maybe we can start with um you know just a brief synopsis of yourself but also what does 1843 stand for how did you guys come up with that um sure. you know that branding and and just kind of the the inception of of the fund
1: Yep. Yeah, and absolutely, and you know, the, it's a, such a blessing and a curse. This name, eighteen forty-three.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the reasons we chose it is it's impossible to trademark a name, and mm-hmm. you really need to trademark not so much that just so you can go after other people, but so that someone doesn't come after you and and give you a cease and desist letter that you have to fight after you've invested yeah. a lot, you know, in branding the name. So we really worked hard to find out something that we could trademark and every anything capital is already taken. So we, <laughs> yeah. we said, you know, I think we have to find a really meaningful number here. And uh, 1840 and also two numbers get you to the top of the list. So that's kind mm-hmm.
0: of Oh, nice. interesting. You mean for SEO?
1: So, so if you know, for deal flow, if you're at the yeah. list of all the woman funds or all the VC funds or anything, it is 1843 is going to be if not the top at the near you know near the top. So I did not
0: know that. So with with fund yes. databases sometimes the numbers just show up first.
1: Yes. That's yes. great. <laughs> exactly. So so that's been really helpful and yeah. really side benefit of it. Um mm-hmm. But you're right that the numbers do get scrambled and people will sometimes say, oh, Tracy, she's with the 1828 capital. I'm like, that's fine. (laughs) We'll figure it out. But 1843 was the year that Ada Lovelace wrote the first computer program. And Ada is really interesting besides being a woman in the 19th century that was interested in in computing. um, She was also Lord Byron's only legitimate daughter. So she had this the sensibility of the beauty of poetry of numbers, and then also the analytical side. And I don't know, maybe um, some people on the call are familiar with Charles Babbage, who started the analytical engine, which is credited to being the forerunner to the computer. And and she programmed that with punch cards that she had seen Charles Jacquard use punch cards to program looms to make his tapestries. And she said, you know, I think we can transfer this to the analytical, Mm -hmm. engine. kind of exciting. So at least to me. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, it's really interesting. Yeah, I also appreciate um, you know, ENIAC Ventures, right? Cuz they're named after the ENIAC computer. Exactly. So any I'm a little bit of a nerd so whenever anybody's right. kind of named after like a mathematical algorithm or anything that's tied to computing, hey, you know, you you have me at you have me at at that word. So um, Exactly. Yeah. But
1: I think it it kind of suits how we look at companies too because mm-hmm. we love the analytical side but we also love the story. Sure. So it's a nice combination.
0: And that's really what adventure is, right? It's yeah. storytelling. I mean, the way that you get into great deal flow, the way that VC, I mean, the way that startups kind of captivate you is really the story. And then even as an emerging manager, as you're trying to help LPs get to know who you are, it's really the story, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. True.
0: Yeah. Well, let's start from the beginning, you know, maybe let's talk about your career um, very, very early, you were in the yes. legal industry and I've seen, I've, I've interviewed so many VCs, so I've seen so many of them start, um, from a legal background and, you know, I, I can already see some of the superpowers that kind of feed into your current role as a venture fund, but, uh, maybe talk about where you grew up, where you went to school and then, um, you know, just your legal career and how you pivoted into VC and why you even pivoted.
1: Right. I, I grew up in a small town in Illinois called Rockford, Illinois. And my dad was an estates and trust lawyer. And he used to always say, Tracy, the only sure things in life are death and taxes. And so he really encouraged me from a young age to go to law school. And um, I really did enjoy it. But I always say, if I have had any regrets in life, it would have been that instead of doing just a JD, I would have done a JD MBA, which only Mm -hmm. would have taken another year um, and would have been just a terrific background because I really have always gravitated to the finance side of things from... Mm -hmm. My very first job, which I started out working at a merchant banking firm, and literally from day one, I said to them, this is great, I'm happy to work on all the documents for you for all the deals. But what I really enjoy is the business side and can I learn financial modeling? And so they sent me to the University of Chicago for a, for a, a short course, business uh, course on finance. And um, and I really, really got excited by that side and, and never looked back. I, I really I appreciate the education on the legal side, and it really helps for me reading documents. And I think that a lot of um, especially newer funds, don't focus as much of the on the documents and don't realize until it's too late what they do or don't have in their documents. So sure. I mean, we look at everything holistically, right? Is, is it a great market opportunity? Is this a great team? Is this right timing for this? But then also too, how's the deal? Right. Is yeah. it is the valuation crazy? But then also too, do we get preferences? Are we getting locked out of the preferences? So um that you don't realize at the end of the day can make Mm -hmm. the difference between just getting your money back or getting a multiple on your
0: capital. And I think that's a superpower that you would have that I think others may not have Um, just kind of having a little bit of that legal background. Right. I mean, you can kind of really, read through the lines and maybe understand that terminology where somebody else would probably have to hire a lawyer and, and, um, yep. you know, get some extra expertise. So well,
1: we, we do also have outside counsel because mm-hmm. as good as I am, I know that things change all the time and I'd love to know sure. what current terms are. So it's nice to have that viewpoint of somebody who sees it all, all day long. And I highly recommend that you hire outside counsel to review your documents, even if you're not the lead. Um, the other thing is too, is that, uh, um, even it's, it is a superpower, but it's not because sometimes it's also a blessing and a curse because mm-hmm. so maybe ignorance is bliss and some of this stuff, right? Yeah. And a lot of times, sometimes I'll know going into a deal, I'll go, okay, I know we're doing this and I know that we don't have provider rights, you know, and, and that is because we're small. I get really frustrated knowing that I don't have them and, and it has come back to bite us. So
0: Sure. No, it's a good point. And um, so let's keep going. So, you know, you, you kind of studied these business classes, started kind of building more of that, you know, skill set understanding finance and did some financial modeling. And then, uh, and then what happened after that?
1: Uh, well, when I was working for this merchant banking firm mm-hmm. in Chicago, um, one of the things that they did do is that they raised a fund to do cross-border work between the United States and China. So this was a, sure. a private equity fund. Um, I had worked in Japan. I'd worked for a law firm in Tokyo, so I spoke Japanese. So that's why I was hired in the firm in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that that was my first introduction to the fund structure. And then when I worked at Robertson Stevens, I had a really nice introduction to both venture capital and to technology. And then I became a partner of a billion dollar telecom fund called Baker Capital. Sure, that was worth capital. So I've seen this. Yeah,
0: stuff. that's great experience. And what were some of the initial things that you've observed as far as just the dynamics with China, Japan versus U.S. as far as how business is done, how funds are ran? Um, and, you know, how have you seen that evolve over the, you know, the last few years as far oh as just cross-border transactions and yeah. how handled things are handled?
1: You know, this has been a, a 30 year perspective for me, which mm-hmm. um, is nothing in terms of Asian history, you know, that's sure. just a and, but in that short time, um, I have seen some sort of love, hate, love, hate, and, and it's a very hot and cold relationship that can kind of turn on a dime. So, um, you know, look, we have some great companies that are doing some really great things in Japan right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's exciting. But uh, we, as a fund to date, have only invested in companies that are based in the United States.
0: Sure. And, and then and
1: we want to take a lot of that extra risk, right? It's hard enough. Yeah, to right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we co-invest with a couple funds in Japan and and also in, you know, East, Far East Asia, you know, China, mainland China and and Hong Kong, and um, there's been a big initiative for impact and deep tech. You know, that's kind of what I've been seeing with just specifically the ones that we co-invest with. There's also a pretty big hot fintech ecosystem, especially like in Singapore and uh, Hong Kong, and then they got some of those big accelerators as well. Um, you know, back then on the private equity side, how do they like to think about portfolio construction? Do they think about you know real estate? Or are they also thinking about uh, public markets, bonds, or is it you know mainly just straight up PE deals where they're, you know, trying to take up 80% of the company with debt.
1: Right. I, I think it's everything. Just mm-hmm. like we do our portfolio construction yeah. they're trying to as balanced as possible. Um, the only thing that I have seen in the, there's two things. The The different mindset is that it's not short-term thinking. We think mm-hmm. on a quarterly basis, right? Sure. You know, where, where's the quarterly reporting? How are we doing? They think on a hundred year basis, mm-hmm. So when they're building positions in something, it's not with short-term thinking. So that's number one. And then number two is there's there is a certain amount of uh, being risk-averse. So mm-hmm. that uh, you see them coming in sometimes a little too late on things, like in Japan, yeah. uh, that people were coming investing in real estate in the United States when it was too late, right? And sure. That led to a lot of trouble in their economy that still persists today.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's an interesting portfolio construction, right? Because as a as a VC, you're thinking about you know how many deals you're going to be investing in every year for seven to ten years, and then here you go, you got like a Japanese portfolio that's long term thinking. It's like how do you break that out into thirty right. years, right? What's the IRR that you're expecting in in thirty right. years? So that's um, that could probably be kind of tricky and and um, kind of a unique culture that you got to in- integrate yourself with, right?
1: It's a very long game of chess. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> So did the private equity game for some time, you know, worked at some massive funds yep. and then, um, and then is that kind of when you stepped into venture?
1: So I, I took some time off. I had mm-hmm. two sons and I decided that I wanted to, to raise them and did everything that you should try to do as a mom, work at the school, do fundraisers. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I raised money for an art, uh, an art museum that we had in town and, uh, played a little bit of tennis, but um, really lost my mind. And so the way that I got back into work again without having to sacrifice time with my family was through uh, doing angel investing. And, um, at the time I, I was frustrated by that name because I thought I'm not an, I'm a real investor, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just someone dabbling here, yeah. but, uh, but that created a portfolio. And I was lucky enough, um, actually just this week, it was announced that one of my portfolio companies that I invested in personally had a billion dollar exit. That's beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. It was, it's nice to be in the unicorn club. Mm-hmm. Finally, Yeah, <laughs> I've had a lot of successes, but this is, this is the first one, you know, yeah. I've had companies that have exited with a greater multiples mm-hmm. but this is the one that you know gets all the attention as a as a unicorn So yeah. which is great um and then on the back of that portfolio that i put together i went and raised my own fund it was really great timing women we're, mm-hmm. were getting more attention and yep. for the first time we actually could raise money so um it was really exciting and i decided to throw my hat in the ring and uh and it was successful so
0: yeah, and you also you also selected a co-founder as well, right? Didn't you have a like a partner that you that you collaborated with, or were you were you a solo GP in the beginning?
1: So I started the fund by myself, okay. and we have I have uh, uh, venture partners, mm-hmm. and I did have um, someone who was a partner who who is no longer with the firm.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting model too, because I think you know you the the whole venture partner model. That helps you take the the you know it helps you just scale completely globally right if you if you don't have the reach of East Asia or Europe you know being in New York or being in Montana um, having people uh, support you as a community based VC I think is really helpful and I think you've been you know really successful in building that and Mm -hmm. and then the community also would just deal flow sharing right kind of having more of a collaborative approach versus the uh, the sharp elbow approach I mean. People have told me in New York, there's sharp elbows, but overall, I haven't had too many issues. So I don't know what you feel about the West Coast versus (laughs) New York or just, uh, you know, in Canada or internationally, as far as just kind of collaborating on deal flow.
1: Listen, we are in a highly competitive business mm-hmm. and there are a lot of dollars at stake. And when yeah. you're in a situation like that, yeah, sure. Of course, you're going to see some sharp emb- elbows, sure. you know, whether you're getting cut out of follow-on funding and mm-hmm. a deal or, or you know, other things, it 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 happens and you have yeah. to keep open. Again, one of the good reasons it's good to pay attention to the documents, right? Because everything will always come back to the documents. And yeah. and I've had situations where I've raised my hand to participate in deals and been cut out. And it's... Sure. Uh, it's really frustrating, but it's one of the reasons that we decided to have a thesis around aging as well, because then when you develop an expertise and you develop a real network in a space and you're seeing everything, you become much more value add to companies. And now that I've actually been able to slide in with a small check ahead of other people because they want my industry knowledge, which Mm is
0: great. Yeah. I think that's a great, you know, and, and what you're referring to is, um, getting access directly with the founder due to your relationship and then kind of your strategic um credibility versus kind of the other vcs that might just be able to write a bigger check but they just aren't connected in the in the industry like you are especially with like aging tech right it's
1: true yeah, yeah absolutely and it's um luckily for me this space has just evolved recently you know mm-hmm. we we've just recently started seeing companies that weren't just all phone based, you know, mm-hmm. um, or gadget based. And so, uh, with the advent of technology in into the space, um, I've been able to get to know most of the players and, and sure. participate and, and, uh, develop some nice relationships.
0: So let's unpack aging tech, uh, yeah. for a second, cause there's mobility, yep. there's, there's longevity, there's okay, elderly yes. care. And look, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I'm, I didn't, you know, fortunately have to deal with that yet, but, you know, I have family members that it's just really, really difficult on everybody, not even just the person that has to deal with aging care, but, you know, how can that be innovated on? I mean, again, going back to the terms, who knows like what coverage they have, you know, you look at your insurance plan, like, do you really know, you know, when you get older, like what treatment you're going to get? I think you have a good idea and I think you're more worried about it as you get closer to that age. But I'll, I'll be honest, I don't really know, you know, what my parents, you know, what the options are right now, I ha- I'd have to start thinking about it much more carefully. But, you know, I do you feel that there's innovation as far as just kind of better knowledge on, you know, what your plan is, like when you get older, and how do you take care of your parents? And is that kind of a subset of something you're looking at as well, I guess, just kind of elderly care, and, yep. um, and making sure that there's the right you know, treatment and, and just long-term care for those people as well. There's, there's, there's big insurance companies that are getting innovated by fintechs, but I don't know if that really covers everything. Right. I think there's some better billing, uh, you know, platforms, there's millennials that can buy life insurance through an app. But again, you know, if you're, if your aunt or your parents are starting to get sick, it's like, how do you get the right education as far as like what the best treatment should be? And I feel like for me, it's still kind of scary. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. And um, I think what you're talking about there, we talked about three different things, which is caregiving, mm-hmm. um, innovative insurance products for when you do need care, and then also retirement planning and saving. Yeah. And all of that stuff is really intimidating. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right, but it's all incredibly necessary. Yeah. I feel like you just teed me up because we <laughs> invested in probably the greatest, not probably definitely the greatest company in the space. And it's called Carry Loop. It's a company out of Dallas and they are doing a fantastic job uh providing providing for employers, Mm -hmm. the ability to, for their employees to offload all these responsibilities. Sure. So um, if you are, for an example, Procter & Gamble is one of their clients. If you work for Procter & Gamble, you are able to access CarryLoop and use their care coaches to basically do everything for you. If you have somebody that needs some extraordinary care, whether it's a child that you had that was recently diagnosed with a disability, or whether it's your mom that has Alzheimer's and all of a sudden you're confronted with this and you're trying to get your head around, you know, getting your work done and you've got a lot of distractions otherwise. And suddenly you have to decide, does mom, can mom still live at home? If she does, are there sensors that we can put in? If she doesn't, does, should we move her to memory care? And how mm-hmm. expensive is that? And how do we navigate Medicare and Medicaid? And how do we get her transportation to and from the doctor? And this is
2: sure.
1: care coaches map out and help with everything. Mm-hmm. So it really keeps people productive at their job, which from a business standpoint, when we were analyzing the investment mm-hmm. possibility, we looked at, there's such clear ROI here. Yeah. You know, I mean,
0: there's some people that have quit their jobs to do this. I mean, they've had to make this.
1: Joel, it's there's 3 million women that just quit jobs because of caregiving responsibilities. I mean, it's an absolute epidemic out there. And um, the more that we can help people all around the better, I Mm -hmm.
0: think is Do you think also it's because people just, it's a sensitive topic to even talk about or even face, right? I mean, I think part of it is a logistical part, but it's just nobody wants to talk about elderly care and how to take care of their parents and then even just their finances, right? Um, So I think that's kind of a very...
1: This is this is not a sexy space like drones, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, so that's I guess the good news and bad news, right? Is that there's a lot of opportunity for me, and mm-hmm. uh, I've been able to take advantage of that because there aren't big, huge funds saying this is this is the space we're going to be in.
0: Sure, and it's also great when it's a win-win, right? If you can invest in companies that can, you know, help the world and also provide oh social impact, you know, because normally when you, you know, you and I have talked about this, right? When you think about impact investing, that's really hot right. in the private equity space, but those right. deals don't really make any money. You know, I mean, you get, you get a great ESG score, but you're not getting the venture type of returns. Um, so we can do both like you're doing, Beauty, you know, with some Beauty of these Counter
1: deals. Did. Beauty Counter was both great for the world because it mm-hmm. was not uh, toxic products. Um, sure. but, uh, but you're right that a lot of these, and, and I'm confronted mm-hmm. very often too, with a lot of things that... Okay, this this particular company combats loneliness for mm-hmm. the aging, which is fabulous and something that really needs to happen. And and ironically, actually, there is a code now in insurance for loneliness. They have the insurance companies have quantified it. Sure. Um, but uh, but a lot of times, you're right that there are better economic opportunities other than solving for that
0: mm-hmm. problem. Yeah, and then I think another topic and theme and thesis that you guys focus on also and i think you guys made some investments in this is the mobility space oh yes um so the so maybe you can unpack the opportunities with mobility beyond just picking your parents up right where where is the where's the bigger future is it autonomous you know driving that automatically picks them up i mean where where how deep and far can we go um maybe in the next decade for mobility for aging tech
1: Yeah, absolutely. When we looked at what the biggest problems were, and we spent a lot of time talking to people who run senior living facilities and the like, and and analyzing the market before we even made any investments in the space, um, the large markets are mobility, Mm -hmm. uh, caregiving, uh, fall detection. These spaces are huge. And when you look at at that, then coupled with what Joe Coughlin's doing at the MIT Age Lab, he went right in and tried to tackle mobility first too, because it's the largest Mm -hmm. and Uh, you know, most compelling problem. So we took two investments in the space, one, which is in a ride-sharing company called Hop Skip Drive that's located in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles. And they drive both for children and for the elderly. And um, something that's kind of interesting is that 90% of the drivers are women. Now, this is great from both the perspective of the, the, maybe the person might feel a little more secure having a woman driver, but then also Later down the road, when we're talking about an exit, um, one of the difficulties that Uber and Lyft have had is acquiring women drivers, less than Mm -hmm. 20% of their drivers are women. And so it would be nice for them to be able to acquire all these female drivers because it's 50% of the population that they've facing. Um, which is which is terrific. So then, uh, the other one is a company called May Mobility, which is incredibly exciting, and this is one of the ones that actually just land, launched in Hiroshima, Japan.
0: Oh, as wow. well
1: as being here in the United States in Indianapolis and Providence and Ar- Ann Arbor, Michigan. Actually, it was started by Ed Olson, who was a professor at the University of Michigan. So mm-hmm. it's really exciting to be in Ann Arbor too. But uh, this company is an autonomous uh, shuttle that also has wheelchair accessibility, which was really important to me when we were analyzing the deal. But also too, it's one of the only autonomous driving companies that actually has revenue. They have paying clients in these cities. And um, the hop-skip drive offers you the opportunity to go point to point uh, in a more expensive manner with Mm -hmm. a private driver, but the autonomous shuttles allow people to have mobility within city centers when they um, can't or maybe shouldn't be driving anymore.
0: Sure. And they're probably generating revenue. I, I think the opportunity is more of an enterprise play, I'm yep. assuming, right? If they they could probably provide transportation for a whole uh, community of elderly uh, people to kind of get them from one place to another, take them to the mall or something like that, right? Is yep. that kind of the- right,
1: right? You mean the main mobility or the hop, skip drive? Because right now main, main mobility is just- Mobility. So that right now it's just running on circuits. Okay. So they're low speed, which is mm-hmm. one of the reasons that they're able to be out there functioning sure. safely. And um, they, they have a certain loop that they do. And Got you it. just, it's like kind of like a bus, you can yeah, just, kind
0: of like on. a trolley kind of goes around the, and then it has stops yeah. that they can stop on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. great. And then hop, skip drive. It's more of a, is it kind of an, is it kind of like a consumer marketplace as well? Or do they also do like uh, enterprise stuff for schools as well?
1: So they, they do it's, and actually I hopped on board when they, they flipped to an enterprise model because mm-hmm. the direct to consumer, you know, I mean, I, I think that everybody today listening knows that the direct to consumer customer acquisition costs are crazy. Sure. And it doesn't matter what you're selling. If you're trying to buy like the game of, mm-hmm. you know, Dollar Shave Club, just buying all these Facebook ads and becoming successful is over. Yeah. And so you really have to be creative and innovative about how you acquire customers. And so Hop, Skip, Drive had trouble. Initially, they had traction, but it was Mm -hmm. very, very expensive to to acquire these these clients individually. So they went headfirst into an enterprise game with um, schools. So they are driving at-risk kids and foster children back and forth to school. And they have that sort of baseline now Mm -hmm. for the company where they have a great revenue source and then guarantees for their drivers. So the drivers know that they're going to be working. And so this is how they've been able to scale and have higher margin. Sure.
0: Yeah, and it's repeatable too. If they can prove that they're uh, repeatably just solving the problem that the schools normally have to deal with, I mean, they essentially are replacing the school bus. I guess right.
1: Yep. And COVID obviously was tough for the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have absolutely recovered, and more than 100% of their uh, clients have renewed, Mm -hmm. um, which is great, and a a large, large number of them have renewed at a higher value,
0: which is perfect. What's your thesis? So that's interesting. So that was really helpful with mobility. What's yeah. your thesis on people just living longer and their bank accounts lasting longer, right? So some people have called that longevity finance, right? You're not, yeah. you're not gone at the age of 85 anymore. People have like another 15 years to accumulate wealth, right? So have you guys looked at the fintech space oh, when absolutely. it comes to longevity and what, are, what do you see that's innovative on that side and where, where is that heading?
1: And that's one of the reasons we made the investment in FinAI, which is a Mm -hmm. natural language processing company focusing on chatbot technology, but it's also the underlying, um, all the underlying analytics for uh, using voice, because I think eventually we're going to be... Demographic is aging. We're going to need to be doing our banking by voice. And this is one of the few companies wow. that can do that, which is really great. Um, sure. and, and fintech is definitely an area that we are very interested in and we have some investments in. Mm-hmm. In terms of retirement planning, um, you know, I think in terms of just investing, the mm-hmm. you think, well, and I think, I don't know if everybody knows here, but people over 50 control 83% of the wealth in the country. So it's a ridiculous mm-hmm. amount. It's almost all of it, um, yeah. and a lot of that is still in the hands of sort of either wealth managers or places like Schwab, um, which I'm a big fan of. But uh, but they're not in the betterments, mm-hmm. and and they're not in a lot of some of these other digital banks. So it's been a conundrum, and it's something that we are we are spending a lot of time on and trying mm-hmm. to figure out um, maybe a, on the retirement planning, although we have seen that it's been really difficult to get traction and people have spent a ton of money trying to solve this. Sure, And um, I call it spinach. It's something Mm -hmm. that's, it's absolutely necessary for you. You really need it. You know, you need it, but you're absolutely completely unwilling to upload all of your documents and that it's just not a high enough priority for people right now. So another huge
0: thing is decumulation, right? So as you're getting older, you want to try to take money out, right? Because you may not be earning. So if you, if you take the wrong amount of money, you just get penalized on the tax um, strategy. So I haven't seen too many companies really tackle decumulation. How do you pull out your money the most tax efficiently? How do you donate to charities? You know, kind of all that stuff. So I wonder if you've seen anything uh, on that front, because that also kind of is the same.
1: Nothing compelling. Yeah, not yet. But mm-hmm. I think that we're definitely moving towards that space. You know, I had a personal investment in a company called Silver Nest. And this was mm-hmm. kind of interesting because it w- it gave people the ability to have a roommate. So they mm-hmm. have their largest asset, right, as their house. And this gives them a way to monetize it when they no longer had income. And it was really interesting because the, the large investor who eventually became an acquirer was a reverse mortgage company.
0: Interesting. So,
1: you know, people weren't, maybe they were defaulting on the reverse mortgage Mm because they had taken money out and they said, okay, you've done this. Guess what? We have a good way for you to make some monies to pay us here, take a roommate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's that's a great way to solve loneliness too. So it was a good company all around.
0: And then, and the, the population for this is people that are, uh, may have lost their, their partner, I guess they're later in their age and they're kind of living on their own.
2: Absolutely. So they want
0: a companion, yeah. I remember my wife and I. We would we would actually go to like an Airbnb, and we would be at these. We would pick a house that had some empty nesters, and yeah. it felt like we were visiting our parents. They would get so excited yeah. when we wake up. Um, so I, I feel like having some type of sense of purpose and and having uh, you know the ability to host guests or even just have a roommate, I think, could really um, you know boost the morale for for yeah. the people that are going. You know, that are kind of dealing with loneliness at that Absolutely. age. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, that's great. So you guys are on, you guys, we we were discussing this earlier too. So you're thinking about fun too, and kind of on the, on the road, kind of, you know, working on that. Um, Has your, has your thesis evolved uh, from the current thesis? Have you expanded it? Are you really staying laser focused on the same uh, focus of silver? So it's silver tech. And then any other themes that you guys are really excited about as well?
1: So we, we are a generalist fund. Okay. Um, I don't believe in strategy taxes, mm-hmm. but I yeah. do believe in investment thesis and those mm-hmm. can change. Yeah. Those can change based on where the investment appetite is because also too, like I always say, anybody can make an investment. That's pretty darn easy. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's hard to get into the good ones. Sure. But the uh but it's really getting out, right? Getting yeah. out of- True art. And so we keep tabs. We talk to a lot of um, bankers, a lot of strategic acquirers to, to keep tabs on their appetite and who's buying what, where, at what value, right? Mm-hmm. Because that also can dictate to us where we can invest in a company. What's the right pricing because where are we going to exit? And I remember when we started the company, the median exit price for venture-backed deals was $56 million. And sure. so you Okay, you're seeing all these deals done at 80 million or 100 million valuation. You better be darn sure that company's going to exit for over two billion, because otherwise yeah. you're going to be able to to get a great return for your investors. Sure. And so um, that was the strategy between, between behind Series A, Series B, also too because mm-hmm. 90% of seed stage deals fail. So even yep. though we are small and are not the lead on seed stage. Deals, what we're trying to achieve is the best above market returns we can. And so we found that in series A and series B, because it still allows you an early exit to do well, Mm -hmm. but uh, it also gives you the runway, but the lower risk profile.
0: Yeah have you guys seen any have you guys entertained uh you know any of the secondary opportunities and you know do you, do you see some of the you know emerging funds kind of get out quicker with the secondaries because some of these founders they want to buy a house you know some of the funds that are that were in earlier they want to cash out and provide liquidity so there are some secondary opportunities so are you seeing some funds get out quicker you know leveraging that mechanism um and then also do you see that as an entry point as well using secondaries to get into some really Hot deals and look, I've I've personally gone in, gotten into uh, a couple secondaries that I've been excited about. Um, but you know, would love to hear your thoughts on exit and entry uh, with secondaries.
1: No, absolutely. I I think it is a, a great way to exit, and um, we haven't had that happen in our portfolio yet, but mm-hmm. uh, it very well could. Um, the uh, in terms of as, as an entry point, actually, it's ironic that you bring this up because I'm looking at two right now that mm-hmm. were not. So I, my philosophy is it's not the calls you take, it's the calls you make. So these are not opportunities that were brought to us, but these were companies that I really, really like, and mm-hmm. have said to them, you know, look, we'd be willing to do a secondary in your company because we yeah. like so much, and we wanna, we wanna have a placeholder here. So.
0: I, I totally agree. That's the best feeling for me, to be honest, Tracy. So when yeah. I feel lucky that I was able to even get into the deal, right. like for me, that feels magical. Cause I'm like, wow, you know, this is a really, really oversubscribed deal. But if you feel that you're able to kind of build that relationship and that trust with the founder and Absolutely. add value in some way, and then you're in, you're like, wow. You know, like I, and that's, that exactly kind of relates to the quote that you mentioned earlier. It's like, you took that deal, you know, you tried to, try to get access and you try to build, because a lot of times, right. It's, it's the founder uh, trying to get you in. And even if you're an emerging manager, a lot of times your check is the smallest on the cap table, you know? So from an optics, from an optics standpoint, it always doesn't look the greatest, right. If you got the smallest check, but if you're able to build that relationship and build trust then they bring you in, it's like, wow, that's, that's amazing that they let us in, you know? So.
1: I know, but I think it's so competitive now. We have so many new funds Started, I think you really have to build a reputation for yourself. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know to something. So. You
0: and I talked about Twitter VC. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Edge. Like, what what do you think can help? Because these days, just being fintech. I mean, you and I are both generalist funds, right? But um, you know, the emerging manager program that I have, I have like you know, people were were joking with me because I got like five fintech emerging managers, right? So just being fintech isn't enough. So what is it? What what can you do to um, differentiate yourself and what are some of the things that you've learned to, to do and which, which things don't matter.
1: Right. Well, that's like, we're interested in FinTech, but I'm Mm -hmm. always more interested if it has an aging angle. Right. And I chose the aging space because Mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of people and I could, I could have a voice in Mm -hmm. this space. Yeah. Um, And I think that that you can differentiate yourself by by being on Twitter, by by creating content, by being mm-hmm. creating things that are valuable and and like doing podcasts, I think is a, a great way to differentiate yourself and to have access to people. Um, but then also too, it's just you just can sometimes just ask too. Mm-hmm. You can just bring yeah. them up on you know, either LinkedIn or try to try to get their email address and say, look, I've noticed something very important about what you're doing or about your mm-hmm. background. And this is why I'm interested. And I think, I think that first and foremost, founders want to know that you care, right? Yeah. That you understand their business and that you care. And that's a good way to differentiate yourself because a lot of people don't take that extra step.
0: Sure. Yeah, and I think it's on both sides. I think it's with LPs and with founders. Yeah. Um. They just uh. They just like working with people that they like working with, right? Yeah. So they if yeah. they if they just like you and um yeah. and they want to you know join the journey, take that journey with you, then I think um that's much more than uh you know posting on Twitter you know regularly two to three times uh, a day. So right. I think it's it's just sometimes there's those intangibles that you really. Really yeah. can't explain, right? It's just kind of hey, they really love your 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 mission and your journey, and they're going to take a bet on you, and uh, or they're going to take your money, right? Yeah. So yeah. and yeah. building
1: relationships is really important, and that can be done at a cocktail party or it mm-hmm. can be done over Zoom. Um, so as much as you want to build your external profile, I think what we're talking about is it's not necessarily just about you. Make mm-hmm. it about them,
0: yeah, right? I, I, I remember
1: Bill Clinton said, "The second you forget that it's about them, and you've lost the election." And, um, I was just really, really lucky to, uh, be able to invest in the founders of Teladoc have started a new mm-hmm. company that's TeleDoc 2.0 called Recuro Health. And this would never be a company that I would think that I would have access to, but I did because I'd gotten to know the founder Michael Gorton, because he was on the board of another company I was invested in mm-hmm. and I developed a relationship with him and, uh, and we're, we're super excited to be a part of it now.
0: No, that's great. Yeah, and um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your sourcing and screening uh, best practices and any recommendations because we we do have some aspiring and emerging managers in here. So, um, you know what what are some ways that that have helped you in terms of just finding great deals? Um, you know, I think we talked about relationships and yeah. collaboration. Any any tools beyond Crunchbase and, and PitchBook and any other frameworks that have helped you find uh, great founders.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, I think first of all, it's it's a great idea to develop the thesis yourself. So figure mm-hmm. out where, where in fintech you think the real opportunities are left. If fintech is something you know, we're in healthcare, we're in retail, Where where where's the white space? Mm-hmm. So I think you need to, st- instead of You know, we're also flattered when so many people want to talk to us and and share their ideas and we get very excited about what we hear. But if you haven't canvassed the environment yourself for that space, and that's one of the reasons we became much more thesis driven. um, Sure. Is because if you don't know what's happening in the space, you don't know whether it's really truly a good idea or not. Yeah. So I would encourage everyone to step back and even take two or three months and sit down and really figure out where the white spaces are that they want to attack, mm-hmm. and then go after the companies in that space and and start even sometimes with the the hottest company in the space and call up the CEO and say, do you have 10 minutes? I'm really looking for, I'm sure you get a lot of people pinging you because they do. The famous CEOs will get a lot of new founders coming to them, asking them mm-hmm. to introduce them to their VCs or other people that they know. So those people are going to be a great source of deal flow for you. So. Sure that's that it's like i said before it's the calls you make not the calls you take
2: right yeah
0: no really good advice really helpful too um i'll open it up for questions see if anybody wants to rattle off any questions if not i'll still uh you know try to bring up some uh helpful questions to tee up the discussion but i guess anybody in the audience have any questions about you know tracy and her background and just breaking into vc Hi. Hello.
3: hey anu. How are you doing, are you doing? Um, Tracy? That It was so wonderful to hear, um, you know, a woman in BC and um, your, your um, journey really resonated with me because oh, uh, I had a similar journey. So I began in tech, ran um, yep. my company, um, we did an overseas stint, so, you know, kind of um, spent some time there, uh, ran my company, but, I, you know, kind of my kids took front seat and then came back, started doing angel investing and now, you know, I really want to um, get more into uh, putting VC at the forefront, right? VC is, I've always been interested in startups. Um, so I'm, I'm in uh, Houston, um, Texas. So I look at a lot of um, new energy companies and that's, you know, an interesting space, but I'm a generalist, right? So I kind of look at companies in um, the digital and SaaS space. And I was curious, um, you know, you you talked about, um, you know, Joel asked about the two companies, I was very interested. I I looked at May uh, Mobility, a very interesting play, Uh, definitely, you know, um, uh, going into the self-driving and uh, supporting the uh, older um, set of, um, you know, as well as I think with working individuals, it's great to have that support. So I'm, I'm kind of um, curious, um, you, you, you don't uh, have like a very um, tight thesis, which is great, I think, as an investor, because then you can kind of, you know, find what the opportunities are. But when, yeah. raising, when raising your first fund, um, how did you go about and how did you convince your LPs and what were some of the challenges? What are some, you know, tips that you have um, in terms of raising your first fund? And then sure. follow on what matters is it. How you did in that first fund, but it's a really short time because we see, you know, seven, eight years or what yeah. matters. Yeah. Right. So when you're um, fundraising and how did you go about finding people to bring in, into your team? So, you know, I'd love to hear your journey, um, with 1837. Sure. And,
1: and it's 1843. <laughs> we about the numbers. I know it close enough though. So uh anyway, it's um those are all really, really great, great questions. And uh, I think that some of the things that we don't think about when we're starting funds is that you're sort of the same stage as a seed stage, seed stage company. And sometimes I would, you know, I get turned down by an institution. And I'd say, well, I, I agree. I wouldn't, take, I wouldn't take a chance on me either at this point because it's so early, you know. Um, but uh, at the seed, seed stage company stage, this is what I tell the founders. And at the, you know, first time fund stage, it is almost impossible to get institutional capital, and so you know for for there are now seed stage investors for VCs, but um, for the founders, but there's no real seed stage uh, fund investors. Which yeah. actually, there's probably a market opportunity for that. You can't
0: um, you can't pull a drop down in PitchBook and look up micro LP. It's no. just not. No. Not one of the drop downs. Yeah.
1: No, exactly right. So, um, just like a seed stage company, I would—I always tell the founders, you need to go after the person that uh, is really trusting you and that knows you well, because those are the people that at this point, you're still saying, trust me, whether it's a company or a VC fund, you're saying, these are the things I'm going to do. And you, you should just trust me. And um, I think when you get to now for fund two, and then for fund three, for me, I, I've done it. I can say, look what I did mm-hmm. versus this is what I'm going to do. So I really would start with, I always tell both founders and, and new managers, there's gold in your v- in your LinkedIn account. So what you need to do is go through your LinkedIn account and maybe they're not the investor, but someone they know might be the investor and say, these, these are the things, this is the opportunity I'm going after. And here's why I'm the best person to do it. And if you know someone in your network, I would love to talk to them or even for somebody to give me advice. So that is, you'll be so surprised because there'll be people that you would think, oh, this person does a lot of investing. So they're, they're probably a sure bet or, oh. This is another one. This person has so much money. Why wouldn't they invest with me? Well, guess what? That person might just really be comfortable in fixed income and cash. And you can't blame them. That's their own personal choice. It doesn't matter if they have $10 billion. So um, there's going to be people too that you that you sort of just meet, but it's going to be through someone who knows you because you have to have that trust factor that you're going to be surprised will, will just write you a check right away. I, people that would do it over the phone and it always dumbfounded me. <laughs> but those are some of my greatest investors that I'm closest to now. Awesome!
3: Awesome! Thank you so much for sharing. Oh yeah, absolutely. yeah, and I
0: think we talked about this too. I mean, it's uh, there's no real formula or correlation. I, you know, I think we referenced on one of our discussions, Tracy uh, yeah. Elizabeth Yin's uh, blog. You know, I think she talked to like 800 LPs, and some of them invested, and some of them didn't, and she could not find some pattern to derive from that she's just like look there's no correlation so it is very much you know a numbers game it's a sales strategy you got a pipeline and you know you don't want to you know the quote i've heard in the past is you don't want to feed a you know you want you don't want to offer a steak to a vegan right if they focus if they're a real estate family they're not going to care about venture because they just don't get it. And, and I've actually done a couple syndicate deals and I've talked to a couple LPs and they're like, Joel, I just don't get venture. It doesn't make sense. Right. Like I can't right. sell my shares. <laughs> like, I can't like just go on the app and uh, you know, just cash out. I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's so, so there's a, there's an education behind it yeah. too. And I think um, there's just some people that just don't have an interest in it and it just isn't aligned with their strategy. So it's like, yeah. it's very tough to try to feed it to them and continue stuffing it down uh, their True. pipeline if they don't care about it and it's not in alignment. you are of,
1: absolutely right yeah. so it has to I always say too look if someone really wants an above market return they should have invested in Apple last year mm-hmm. because you know it's a great company great balance sheet you get 80 80% return on your money yeah. and you're liquid right mm-hmm. so so this is an above market return but there mm-hmm. also has to be a secondary reason for the person to invest. Like you said mm-hmm. the person who who has real estate or I had a, a friend who I still love and talk to a lot who had sold a lot of Taco Bells Mm -hmm. and I kept trying to get him to invest in the fun. He's like, Tracy, I just don't (laughs) understand venture. And uh, so um, it's it's really about finding the person that is really has an emotional connection to what you're doing too. And that could be just wanting to be involved in interesting, Mm -hmm. exciting new technology companies, because that's very appealing for a lot of people. And I think especially now, and this is the golden age of venture because people are seeing tons of exits. There's still a lot of cash on the sidelines, and I don't know if you guys saw, but um, in 2008 there were a thousand family offices, and now there's eight thousand. Wow! Wow! Yep. So there is tremendous amount of interest in getting Mm -hmm. into this game. You just have to find the pipeline of people that have the ability and the interest Mm -hmm. in investing in you. And and that could take 300, 400 phone calls or meetings Mm -hmm. or. And, And you
0: know, part of that increase of families is the next gens, right? So uh, we actually had a next gen family come in last night to our emerging manager program. And he was like, look, you got to, You're going to have to slide into these DMS. You know, you can't, tap that database that every single fund manager has that they bought from, you know, family offices.com. No, just yep. dis- no, no disrespect to, you know, family right. or any of these databases because everybody's hitting, everybody's pounding those, some some those same databases. So exactly. it might be innovative to kind of comment on, you know, you, you know, a single family office is a next gen, you know, they have an interest in sailing. Right. And maybe you comment, on something that, that you, that you resonate with too. You don't want to be fake about it, but, but slide in, slide into their DMS, right. Message, message them and kind of take that conversation um, offline from Instagram, from all these other digital channels. So I think you have to kind of think a little bit out of the box.
1: And Um, I also too, um, there will be people that say yes upfront that will not end up investing. mm -hmm. And that's incredibly disappointing. Yeah. But then there are also too, I always say, don't discount someone who told you no. Because if you continue to prove yourself and do what you say you've done, even though they said no originally, you might actually be successful with them after you've had a few more successes under your belt.
0: Sure. Yeah, the average is 19 months. Um, So that translates to at least a couple of years of uh, relationship building. And, you know, I mean, the institutions you probably already know, you know, probably went through this, Tracy, but they want to see a full fun life cycle as well. So they want to see the whole progression of the, of the life cycle and then, and right. then, Hey, let's talk in fun too. So I think it's also important. Would you agree to meet those institutions now? Cause it takes a whole decade for them to even observe what you did.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, but I would be selective about it too. Mm-hmm. Cause you yeah. can waste a ton of time with institutions yeah. and they want all these specific reports and they want things printed out a certain way. Sure. And I think that the, you know, for the, if a fund is under a hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. and you know, look, there are people that go out and raise hundred million dollar first time funds, but they're generally a team that comes out of Sequoia sure. or, you know, another front gate or some of these, you know, really mm-hmm. well-known fund that they've known already because they've been an LP in mm-hmm. that well-known fund. Yeah. Um, but if you're just starting out, I think institutional capital is almost a unicorn it's, it's just so we have one institutional investor in our first fund um i had expected them to be the first one in because they're strategic they were they were from the state where i was based and uh they ended up being the last investor and we had to uh we had to reopen the fund to let them in sure so, so um so i would just i i think you're better off if you're raising a first fund or even a second to talk mm-hmm. to uh, people who are just a little more aggressive, which yeah. is an individual or, and, you know, and there's a lot of people out there that have had liquidity events mm-hmm. with startups or are working for large technology companies that are making a lot of current income. And that's another thing too, for the, if you're, if you're welcoming smaller checks into your fund, say mm-hmm. the smallest check size in ours was a hundred, I would say to people, don't think of it as a hundred thousand. Remember it, Cause a lot of people have not been in a VC fund before, Yeah, so, you know, you don't, you're, you're not Giving me the hundred thousand right off the bat. Some people choose to do that. I I don't. I do the capital calls and, yep. and the IRR. Um, and I so I said to them, if you're committing a hundred thousand, think of it as approximately twenty thousand per year for five years. And the sure. people look at that they're like, oh, well, I can do that. Yeah,
0: it's so, like one angel investment, pretty yep, much. Yep. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: What do you think of angel groups? Do you think they are a good community to build LP relations with, or do you think they're trying to just get into the deal or have you seen that be a good community
1: tough because people are in angel groups for the passion of being involved with the startups and and the excitement of it so if you ask them to be in a fund you're taking away the what's the best part
0: well i feel like they may also kind of get irritated with the uh you know the management fee and carry they're like why do i need to pay a carry if i can just go direct
1: Yep, so. although we're a European waterfall structure. Okay. So that uh, I would always remind our limited partners that mm-hmm. they are getting back all of their dollars plus their fees sure. before we see any carry split.
0: Yeah. And that goes back to the terms, right? Understanding the terms and yep. um, the devil is in the details. So yeah, this is really helpful. So anybody else have any any questions for Tracy?
3: One follow-up I, I have a um, so, you know, you um, give, give very nice details about the first fund, how raising it. Are there any tips about should it be an open fund rolling? Because you said, you know, with your largest institution, you had to reopen the fund. Um, so what's the advantage or not of having sort of an open rolling fund or a close? You know, uh, what, what would you
1: I, I am hopefully on a path to building an institutional quality product and they're most yeah. comfortable with the closed end funds so that's why i did even though i'm small i have done everything by the book and mm-hmm. uh, we even have annual audit that i pay mm-hmm. for every year yeah. because we want to be institutional quality as we move along okay
0: that's a good that's a good piece of feedback and a good um, mindset to have too because I, I think when you get to that institutional, uh, path, you know, you want to have that roadmap, right? So I think some of the institutions, even if you're talking to them now, they're not going to invest. They kind of want to know what your framework is for, like fund two, fund four, and and beyond. So I think already doing, you know, the audits, even though it costs money, um, and already kind of having that structure in place, I think is really a good uh, best practice to have instead of kind of saying, hey, we're going to be angels first and do syndicates and and um, and then go institutional at some point. So I, I think. I think you hit it right on the head as far as just kind of the roadmap and you know having all the infrastructure in place. So, yeah, yeah, oh, that's I great. Have a quick,
2: quick, I have a quick question. Yeah, sure. and I'll make it. I'm gonna get quick because I actually have to drop in four minutes. Um, oh, but Tracy, okay. uh, yeah, again, um, great to see another woman. Be a um, woman, BC. I've spent a lot of years, years, excuse me, in management consulting, but I want to be able to make this transition as well. Been in Joel's class for about a month or two. Um, I love the term silver tech. That's the first time I've heard it, but I'm posted in the chat, I dealt with the unenviable an and emotionally and mentally taxing feed of trying to get my mom into assisted living last fall. So everything you talked about, I can absolutely say there's a market for that. There's a market for having a service for what I went through to have me not go through something like that. And then I got really excited. So I'm curious about this term silver tech, did that exist before you? Did you coin that? Did you have no, like, a hard time getting people excited
1: about it? Like tell me more about Silver Tech. I coined it and it's sort of it's sort of starting to stick, although I would say um people are more familiar with age tech or oh, okay. elder tech, which uh or senior tech. Um they're all interchangeable, but I really like Silver Tech because I feel like it reflects. The vitality and the opportunity in this space. You know, it's not just all about things for, you know, skilled nursing facilities. Mm-hmm. We're talking yeah. a lot of really exciting longevity opportunities as well.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And even the assisted living or wherever, it's, but it's like, which one do you choose? Why? What are the criteria? And mm-hmm. then now I'm even dealing with now she's there, but how do I know that they're doing what they say they were going to do? And occasionally we'll have somebody else go in there. So I, I'm already thinking about like other opportunities mm-hmm. for you. So I hear you. Yeah. yeah, that was that. was, that was So it's, it's just really good to hear your story. And unfortunately, I know we don't have much more time and I have to drop to ask more questions, but it's just great to hear your experiences. So thank you for That's sharing cool. with us today. Of course. Happy to do it. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, Tracy, thanks a lot for coming. It was really great, you know, learning from you and, and all the storytelling. I always ask one final question at the end. Um, any nugget of advice that you got from a mentor or a family member that you want to share with us?
1: Um, well, I always say that my best mentor is Winston Churchill. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: you know, when people say that they don't have access to a mentor, I say, do you you have access to a library? (laughs) Because there's so many great biographies of people that have done their, Mm -hmm. you know, done that and been there before you. And Winston Churchill always said, when you're going through hell, keep going. And that that honestly has gotten me through so much both personally and professionally, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all going to have highs and lows. And, and when you're in those lows, if you just put one foot in front of the other and keep going, you know, some good stuff is around the other side.
0: I love that quote. Yeah. I think it's, that's just our whole ecosystem, right? I mean, dealing with founders, being an emerging manager, uh, we're we're essentially founders too. Right. So, um, so I think that's, that's very encouraging and it helps you just, uh, light that fire again, if you don't have it and you need somebody to light it for you. So yeah. thanks for thanks for doing that for us. And um, I hope you make it back to New York soon. So you can catch up. You're yeah. still in beautiful Montana, right? Yes, which yeah. is great. <laughs> so cool. Hope we get to do a coffee when you come out here. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll be in Montana sometime. sometime. Sounds great. All right, take care. Thanks like so much. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yep.